today, I've got a lot going on in here. I kind of redid the message yesterday. Um, and so we're looking at a whole chapter. And in this chapter, it's Nehemiah chapter 9. What's in that chapter is the longest recorded prayer in the Bible. And so I was thinking about how can I just pick a few verses out and, and get this thing going. And I thought, I, you know, we can't. We've got we to we gotta read this prayer because it's kind of awesome besides. And I also wanted to give you um, a little bit update, a little bit of review of what's been going on in Nehemiah. It'll help us to understand the context better. And so just by way of review, the Jewish people had endured about 150 years of chaos and devastation. It included the destruction of Jerusalem. It included 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And then the people began to filter back into the area around Jerusalem. Oppression, objectification of every kind uh, happened to them. And then they also did that to their own people, as we learned a couple of weeks ago. The Jewish people had become a laughingstock to other nations. Uh, the people were asking this pretty legitimate question, like, if your God is so great, where is he? And, and they had re really no answers for those people. 150 years. And I was thinking about us, you know, having endured a year. Next week, it'll be exactly a year since we had two services, donuts, and gathering in our church. To make matters worse, we saw back in chapter 5 of Nehemiah, he had to chastise his own people for loan sharking one another and forcing the poorest of the poor into what amounts to second and third mortgages and they had to sell off their children into what's called debt slavery and even sexual exploitation. That's what's going on. Uh, it was a big and ugly mess. The chosen people of God were brought to probably, most likely, the lowest point of their existence as a people. Or as one of my mentors used to say quite often, uh, they were looking up from underneath a rock. Do you get it? Looking up from underneath a rock. And those of us that are familiar with the recovery movement or recovery, uh, we understand that that could be a really good place to be if you're owning your own responsibility. And today we will see the culmination of all the prayer, the instructions, the work that Ezra, Ezra was the priest, I think we'll get to it, but he arrived in Jerusalem about 13 years prior to Nehemiah. So we'll see all the prayer, instruction, the work that Ezra the priest and Nehemiah, who became the governor, had poured into the Jewish people. It's commonly believed that, that Ezra uh, came back and he wanted, he worked really hard, he, he wanted to teach the people the scriptures. He wanted to reestablish the Old Testament patterns of worship in the people. But he didn't really gain any ground until Nehemiah came on the scene. So he's got 13 years of working hard to instruct the people of God. In chapter 6, we saw the completion of the wall in just 52 days. Uh, the wall was quite a bit smaller than what we know today as the, as the old, uh, old city wall. Uh, so it, 52 days, it sounds incredible, and it was, but it was smaller than the wall is today. And it caused the enemies of the Jewish people to lose their confidence. It says that specifically in chapter 6, verse 16. And no doubt there was also a major boost to the people. It boosted their physical, spiritual, and political confidence in what was going on around them. Uh, Nehemiah's poll numbers were probably quite high at that point. And then in chapter 7, we see Nehemiah setting up some good governmental systems, structures that included recording the genealogies of the people, that's public records kinds of stuff, as well as implementing some appropriate taxation for the people. Chapter 8, we see Jewish people feeling safe and secure enough to begin to regather in a congregational setting. 
All the years Ezra had been back in Jerusalem, uh, he had a passion to teach the people the Word of God, as I said. And then in Nehemiah 8, verse 2, it's really insightful. It says, all could listen with understanding. It's, it's different to listen, right? And to listen with understanding. And I think we get into our stress and anxiety, and then when we get up, I don't know about you, but sometimes my, you know, I've, I've mentioned before that as almost as soon as I wake up, my mind just starts going in a thousand. And it is hard for me to sit down and to be with God. It's difficult. Uh, Forty plus years into this thing, I, I still have trouble uh, unwinding and paying attention because of all this that's going on in my head. And so this is there, the physical wall, the stability of good governance, help the people to relax and to be able to engage and listen to and respond to God's Word. Uh, Ezra would read, they, they built a platform inside the city walls, much like maybe a platform like this, and there was a podium there, and Ezra would read them the scriptures for a little bit, and then he'd stop, and then the other priests, the Levites, the priests, would go down and explain the law to the people. That's how it worked. That's, that's what they did. He'd read some, go down, explain it, help people understand, and then they'd read some more. And this went on for like three or four hours a day at this point. Uh, and we think, you know, an hour for church is, is a lot. But they did three or four hours of scripture reading and explanation, and then they did three or four hours of um, worship and confession. This is the cycle that they got into once they felt safe enough to regather as a people. We also see in Nehemiah 8 some excellent vision casting when the people heard the word of God with renewed attentiveness and understanding. They began to mourn and to weep. I think it's worth mentioning here that there's at least two reasons for us to mourn and to weep, if you're anything like me. One is that we feel convicted about our actions, our sinfulness, and the other is when we see the beauty, the glory, uh, the magnificence of the gospel. I don't know if you've ever been reading either scripture or a book, and all of a sudden, the, the beauty and the wonder, the majesty of the gospel hits you, and it brings tears to your eyes, and, and you weep. That's happened to me. It doesn't happen to me as often as I'd like it to happen. I'd love for it to happen every day. But I can remember reading Scripture and, and, and seeing something fresh and beautiful there and it bringing tears to my eyes. I've also been in a place of repentance and confession, and that has brought tears to my eyes. So, so there's joy and there's sorrow that can cause us to weep before the Lord. Ezra and Nehemiah apparently at that point discerned that the people had mourned and wept enough, and they told them to go and party. That's kind of awesome. It's kind of awesome. And he had an admonishment to remember the poor, those who couldn't prepare uh, festival foods and drink. Uh, this is the context for maybe what is the most often quoted verse in the whole book of Nehemiah. Uh, the end of verse 10, uh, which says, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, if you've been in church a while, you've, you've heard that saying. A lot of people don't know it's from Nehemiah. But that idea of the joy of the Lord is your strength. Let your grief... It's, it's, it's not saying don't grieve, is it? Because we know grief is good. Because some people get stuck in grief, right? And they can't get out of that grief cycle. But what it's saying here is that we ought to grieve as people, but let our grief take us to God. And, and that, that grief, to own it, to feel it, to get past it, and to move into a place of seeing God and the joy of who God is and the joy of what God is doing and wants to do in us and through us as a people. 
And what's our lesson here? Reading God's Word with understanding will lead to joy and rejoicing. In our context, it's primarily the responsibility of our preaching team to be before you and to unpack the Word of God for you in a way that's responsible and um, meaningful, orthodox Christian doctrine. It's a huge responsibility that none of us take lightly. I think my, to, just to give you my opinion as someone who travels around the country and in the UK and has visited a lot of churches over the past couple of decades, my observation is that in many churches, sermons are not doctrinal, they're devotional. And that, what that leads to is an, an experiential theology where we read Scripture and go by our feelings versus a biblical theology where we begin to truly understand what the Scripture is saying. I was talking to somebody on the production team, Chris, I think, this morning, and we're in a mess, uh, in case you didn't know, in our country. And I think also the Big C Church is kind of messed up right now. And I've been saying to people, when I get the chance, I'll say it to you, if I had to blame a group of people for where we are as a country right now, you know who I'd blame? The pastors. It's us. I think we're the major problem in the Big C Church today, mostly because of what I just said to you. Most sermons are devotional, not doctrinal. If you read Pew Research Studies of what evangelical Christians believe in most churches, it's awful. It's awful stuff. We have churches filled with people who don't know the Scriptures, who are not aware of the essential doctrines of the faith. So I place the blame on me and on us the pastors. So on behalf of pastors, forgive me. And it's all the more reason why I want us to be committed to doctrinal perspective as opposed... Devotion's great, right? Devotionals, awesome. Sundays ought to be more about doctrine and teaching people the essential doctrines of the faith. Excuse my veering off there for a second. Another lesson for us, perhaps, is that now is the time for us as a community of believers to get excited about regathering as va vaccines come and it's, it's beginning to look like things are shaping up. Um, and as I mentioned, I think it's, it'll be a year, exactly a year next weekend that we had our last two-service gathering. And, and for those of you that were around, we had our journey wall experience, that first summit, uh, and then everything shut down. You might have, before you might have said, uh, it might have been Sunday morning and you might have awakened and going, oh, I gotta, gotta go to church today. But now hopefully you're saying, oh, I get to go to church today. Maybe that's more for the people at home uh, than the people that are in here. And our preaching team, I'll just let you know that we've, sometimes we'll talk, you know, and we have these dialogues and discussions and it's, it's a common phrase for pastors to say, I gotta preach. I gotta preach on Sunday. I can't do that. I gotta preach. But in our team now, we, we say, no, 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 you don't got it. You get to. You don't have to preach. You get to preach. And so that's the kind of perspective that I hope that we can carry with us as we begin to get together to regather. Okay, so that, all that brings us to chapter 9. So we will begin to see in chapter 9 some legitimate spiritual renewal take place. And as I mentioned, uh, verses 5 through 37 are the longest recorded prayer in the Bible which will take the people, it's, a, it's kind of a historical prayer, it takes the people back to Genesis 1, as you'll see as I begin to read it, and then it traces the history of God's enduring mercy towards us and our propensity to consistently and continually turn aside into our own selfish longings and desires. Uh, so not much has changed, and before we read that, I want you to see how Paul describes humanity from Romans 3, uh, 10 through 12. Here's what Paul says. 
None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. No one does good, not even one. Now, that is a hard-hitting scripture, isn't it? And I think if you tried to say, if you sat down with an unchurched friend, family, neighbor, co-worker, and read them that verse, I think they would get offended. And I, th I think even I get a little defensive when I read that verse because, because I don't like being identified as useless. Uh, so I, that, that rubs me kind of the wrong way too, let alone an unchurched unbeliever. And so I looked at what Eugene Peterson, he's the author of uh, a paraphrase called The Message. Some of you are familiar with that. And here's what Eugene Peterson, how he renders that verse in The Message. He says, there, there's nobody living right. There's no one righteous, but he says no one's living right. I, love, I love how he uses that. Not even one. Nobody who knows the score. Nobody is alert for God. I like how he says that. It's, it's, it's culturally relevant. It doesn't sting. I don't know if it's supposed to sting, but it, it's not watering down what Paul said, but it's communicating it in a way that people can receive that and say, yeah, yeah, I, I, th I think so. So here's what Paul is trying to say, which I think will help us to better comprehend this prayer that we're going to read in, in Nehemiah 9. No one can achieve complete and utter righteousness, living in their own strength and willpower. Every person on the planet, past, present, and future, is or will be unrighteous at some level. No one is completely tuned into God, and the vast majority of people, Christian or not, would agree with that sentiment, that, that kind of statement. And of course, what we will see when we're able to see this in ourselves and own it for ourselves, then what happens is the seed of the gospel gets planted in fertile soil. We will begin to see why Jesus needed to come down from the perfection of heaven into our brokenness to live a completely righteous life and be fully attuned, be fully alert to his Father. Because we can't do that. Only he did that. No completely human person is capable of this. This helps us to see how Nehemiah also points us to Jesus, that he came out of the opulence of the palace and into the brokenness of God's people to restore a sense of peace and with Ezra's help to bring about spiritual renewal through the correct comprehension of God's Word. When we think of Nehemiah, we tend to think that the big deal is that he rebuilt the wall, but that was just phase one. The real goal of Nehemiah and Ezra was spiritual renewal for the people. Okay, with all that said, sometimes I find it helpful uh, to put some concepts into an equation. It's kind of my nerdiness. Sorry about that. Uh, here's an equation that I think will help us to understand where we're headed. Our propensity to sin plus God's mercy equals covenant grace. Our propensity to sin you add God's mercy to that, we'll cover these things, equals covenant grace. That's kind of an overview of where, what we're going to try and cover today. And so what, with all that said, I want to read chapter 9 and make a few comments along the way because we won't be able to address everything that's said there. And then I'll, I'll pray, and then I have three quick things to look at. So you can either... Close your eyes and listen. You can follow along. Um, but it is like 39 verses or something like that. So hang in there with me, will you? 
Now, on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth with dirt upon them. I guess the parting was over. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sin and iniquities of their fathers. This is what's called a, a sacred, some translations use the word solemn assembly. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day, three to four hours, and for another fourth they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. Um, then the Levites stood on the platform and read. It's a prayer of declaration and remembrance of God's mercy. And they said, arise. I, I, scholars think this is Ezra who wrote this prayer and who, and who spoke this prayer. And as we read it, you'll see that it wasn't something that just came to him as he was standing there. It was something that he had written down and prepared uh, to say because it, it involves a history. Okay, here we go. Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. He's recalling creation, and now he moves into their history. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of the Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you. Abraham wasn't utterly and completely faithful. If you've read about Abraham, he had his issues. He, he, he wasn't completely um, uh, faithful, uh, but his faith allowed the righteousness of God, just like our New Testament faith does. You are the Lord God. Okay, oh, I got lost. Sorry. I should keep my head down here. Okay, and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite, the Amorite, of the covenant uh, with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite, the Amorite, uh, the Perizzite, Perizzite, uh, the Jebusite, the Girgashite, to give it to his descendants. And you, God, have fulfilled your promise. For you are righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. And then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and all the people of his land. And you knew that they acted arrogantly toward them and made a name for yourself uh, as it is this day. You divided the sea before them, so they passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground, and their pursuers you, you hurled into the depths like a stone into raging waters. And with a pillar of cloud you led them by day, and with a pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. And then Ezra begins recalling God's faithfulness. Then you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven, and you gave them just ordinances and true laws and, and good statutes and commandments. So you made known to them your holy Sabbath and laid down for them commandments, statutes, and law through your servant Moses. You provided bread from heaven for them, for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for them, for their thirst, and you told them to enter into in order to possess the land, the land which you swore to give them. And now begins some confession. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds, which you have performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt, but you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That's that word has said. We'll come back to that. And you did not forsake them, uh, even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, this is your God who brought you up from Egypt and committed great blasphemies. 
You and your great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. A pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way. Uh, Your pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna did not withhold from their mouth. And you gave them water for their thirst. Indeed, 40 years you provided for them in the wilderness, and they did and they were not in want. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet swell. You also gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them as a boundary or corner. And they took possession of the land of Sion, the king of Heshblon, and the land of Og, the king of Bashan. You made their sons numerous as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land which you had told their forefathers to enter and possess. So their sons entered into and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and you gave them into their hand and their kings and peoples of the land to do them as they desired. They captured fortified cities and a fertile land and took possession of houses full of every good thing, hewn cisterns, Uh, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat and revealed in your great goodness, but they became disobedient and rebelled against you and, and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had admonished them so that they might return to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you delivered them into the hand of their oppressors who oppressed them. But when they cried to you in the time of their distress, you heard from heaven according to your great compassion and gave them deliverers who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. But as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before you. Therefore, you abandoned them into the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried again to you, you heard from heaven and many times... You rescued them according to your compassion and admonished them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commandments and sinned against your ordinances, by which if a man observes them, he shall live. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not listen. However, you bore with them for many years and admonished them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they, did, they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. Now, therefore, our God, the great and mighty and awesome God, who keeps covenant and loving kindness, has said, do not let all the headship hardship from uh, seem insignificant before you, which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all of your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. However, you are just in all that has come upon us, and you have dealt faithfully, but, you, but we have acted wickedly. For our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law, or paid attention to your commandments, your admonitions with which you have admonished them. But they, in their own kingdom, with your great goodness, which you gave them, with the broad and rich land which you set before them, did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. Behold, we are slaves today. And as, as to the land which you gave our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty, behold, we are slaves in it. Its abundant produce is for the kings, whom you have set over us because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please. So we are in great distress. Now because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, the priests, and our priests. Thank you for listening. Let me pray.
join me. Lord, I pray that we would see ourselves here as much as we're able to stand. In so many ways, we have not been righteous, faithful. Uh, we come in and go out. Lord, capture, recapture our hearts afresh so that we may serve you. Cause us to see and remember and ingest into our soul that the joy of the Lord is our strength. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you hear nothing else today, nothing else today, here's what I want you to hear. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, you have not removed yourself from God's grace, His love, and His care. There's nothing that you could have done. There's nothing that you are doing that would cause God to not love for you, to provide His grace and His mercy towards you and care and provide for you for this day forward. If that's the only thing you hear today, I want you to hear that. And given all that we've covered so far, I'd like to draw your attention to three points that are addressed here in Nehemiah 9 that I think are essential for our own growth and development, as well as our ability to share the goodness of God in this current cultural moment that we find ourselves in. So I'll give all three to you, and then we'll go back as usual and look at them one at a time. So the first one I want to do is review what is meant by the need to separate ourselves from all foreigners, as seen in Nehemiah 9, verse 2. Secondly, I want to review what is meant by God's loving kindness. We covered this back in the fall of 2019, which sounds like a long time ago when we made our way through the book of Ruth. I just thought I'd refresh us in that. And number three, review the difference between mercy and grace. And that will lead us into a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper today. So let's look at those one at a time. Review what is meant by the need to separate ourselves from all foreigners as seen in Nehemiah 9 verse 2. When the Bible instructs God's people to separate ourselves, what does that mean? Now, it pains me to have to say this in 2021. But if someone read Nehemiah 9.2 with racist predilections, they might project this onto our current cultural context and maintain that the races should not mix or intermarry. And that interpretation would be completely and utterly false. We need to see, we need to hear that this and other verses like this were used by uh, pro-slavery and then Jim Crow Americans to keep the races separate. It's an abominable sin for God. We see the New Testament equivalent of this admonition, admonition in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians which is pretty appropriate if you've read Corinthians, uh, that, that their church didn't look much different than the rest of the culture in their day. But 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15, it says this, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? And then verse 15 talks about what has a believer in common with an unbeliever. Again, this is kind of a hard-hitting passage of Scripture. And then in the next chapter, 2 Corinthians 7, 17, which is a quote from Isaiah 52, it says, Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. So what's going on here? What is Paul trying to say? These passages in both Old and New Testament they're not about keeping the races separate. I hope you see that and understand it. it. And it's not about the church 
not engaging with the surrounding culture. It's not that either. These passages are about focus and intention. Where's our primary focus? Where is our intention? And so I, I came up with this phrase I want to share with you that I hope will kind of explain this. To be a full-fledged member of a church. Remember at the end of Nehemiah 9, they're going to actually sign, put their names on a covenant, which is like church membership. To be a full-fledged member of a church, or to be in a God-honoring marriage for that matter, we need to agree on the, the primary objective of the relationship, which would be a mutual commitment or covenant, community, covenant, church, the primary objective of the relationship, which would be a mutual commitment or covenant to put God first at all times. That's what Paul is saying. That's what Ezra was saying in Nehemiah, that we are called to be with people, to do life with people in the context of church who put God first at all times. We all need to be with people like that in our lives. We also need to engage in friendships, relationship building with people who are unchurched unbelievers. We walk with them as well. Be with people, do life with people, have growing friendships with unchurched unbelievers without trying to pretend that you have it all together. As I said a few weeks ago, the way to have integrity before unchurched, before churched or anybody, the way to have integrity is not to have it all together or pretend that we do. And what I said before, and I would agree with again today, when you blow it, what? Own it. That's how we have integrity before one another and before unchurched people. Be honest. Be real. I blow it more than I want to. Maybe you do too. Uh, but I've learned that I need to own it, whether it's with my wife, my kids, my neighbors, my friends, inside and outside the church. I try to be transparent. I try to own my junk and keep moving. Okay, number two. Review what is meant by God's loving kindness. I just, this was just so beautiful when we covered it. In, in the fall of <clears throat> 2019, I wanted to bring this back up. Hopefully, most of you remember that um, we went through the book of Ruth, and one of the major components of that book was the word loving kindness. Uh, it, that, that word loving kindness, it's not used that much in our current cultural context, but it's, it's one of the most beautiful and impacting words in the whole Old Testament. And so you remember that the Hebrew word, and it's used in Nehemiah 9, uh, verses 17 and 32, and the Hebrew word is hesed, H-E-S-E-D, hesed. And I just love this so much. What is hesed? What is God's loving kindness? The consistent, ever-faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, energetic, love of the Father God. Isn't that beautiful? I didn't write that. I wish I did. One of these days I'll take credit, but not today. It's beautiful. And some of you have heard the phrase, hound of heaven. I was reminded of this earlier in the week, or maybe it was last week. It's actually the title of a 182-line poem written by a believing Englishman named, uh, a poet named Francis Thompson, who lived in the late 1800s. It was about the pursuit of a sinner by a loving God. And the poem became very famous after he died. And it influenced a significant Christian authors such as G.K. Chesterton and J.R.R. Tolkien. 
of the Hobbit fame. And J.R.R. Tolkien, in case you haven't heard, is the guy that the Lord used to lead C.S. Lewis to Christ. And so uh, his poem can be found on the internet, and I would encourage you to go find it and read it. So that brings us to reviewing the difference between mercy and grace, which will lead us into the Lord's Supper. Let's review that equation again. Take another look at that just to refresh ourselves. Our propensity to sin plus God's mercy equals covenant grace. So mercy and grace are overlapping at some level, but they are distinctive. And so I thought it would be worth our time today to cover some of the distinctives of mercy and grace so we don't get confused. The equation hopefully reminds us of the difference between mercy and grace. Uh, they're overlapping but distinctive. Uh, they're often used interchangeably, and I don't think they should be. I think we should know the difference, and some of you probably do. So mercy is obtaining or securing that which we don't deserve. And some of you no doubt have heard that description or definition before, obtaining or securing that which we don't deserve. There's this great um, historical fact about a mother whose son was imprisoned, a second offense by Napoleon, and he was condemned to die. And so this mother pushed her way into Napoleon's presence, and she asked uh, Napoleon for mercy on her son. And the emperor, Napoleon, told the mother, second offense, and that justice demanded his death. And here's what the mother replied. I don't ask for justice, I plead for mercy. To which Napoleon replied, but he doesn't deserve mercy. And she said, sir, it would not be mercy if he, if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask. Well then, said Napoleon, I will show mercy. She got it. She shared it. Napoleon heard it and her son went free. Grace. Because of God's mercy, we can open our hearts to Him and believe on the sacrifice of Christ and receive His saving grace. And then a while back, I think we've probably looked at this three or four or five times over the last 18 months. My favorite definition of grace is all that God is lavishly poured into us. And that definition comes from uh, Ephesians 1.8. I think the NIV uses that word lavishly or lavish. It's a beautiful definition of the grace of God. All that God is lavishly poured into you. What if we really saw that and believed it how would our lives be different if we, if we brought that into our soul and it became residential in us? All that God is lavishly poured into me. Our lives might be different. Jonathan Edwards speaks of grace as the Holy Ghost dwelling in the soul and acting there as a vital principle. The third member of the Trinity dwells in our soul. In the church and in our culture, we have made grace too cheap. Dietrich Bonhoeffer coined that term, cheap grace. As we surrender, as we die to ourselves, come alive to Christ, only the grace of God can come into us and do in us and through us what we could not do on our own. Larry Crabb, a Christian psychologist and author who just passed away like a couple of days ago, he said this, listen, I don't think I put it up there, so listen to this, only Christians have the capacity to never pretend. That's because real change is only possible when we live from the inside out and face the realities of our 
internal life and let God mold us into the person who is free to be honest, courageous, and loving. Let me just say that one more time, okay? He wrote a book called Inside Out. That was one of his first big books. It's a good book. Only Christians have the capacity to never pretend. That's because real change is only possible when we live from the inside out and face the realities of our internal life and let God mold us into the person who is free to be honest, courageous, and loving. Most people live from the outside in, and we try to make it look like we have it together. But he's saying, Scripture is saying, too, that we need to live from the inside out, deal with what is true and what is real in us. And here's a, here's a bonus crab quote that I came across the other day. The church has lost its power because it loves so poorly. I hope that's appropriately convicting to us. The church has lost its power because we love so poorly. Here's some comparisons. Some of you will have heard some of this, but I hope it helps you know the difference. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve, and I assume many of you have seen that. Here's a couple you might not have seen that I think helps us. Mercy is God's attitude toward us and grace is God's activity within us. When I talk about grace, I'll often talk about, I'll use the word empowering grace because that's how we are transformed. That's how we change when the grace of God comes and does in us and through us what we can't do on our own. And then a third one is mercy forgives us and grace transforms us. So those are some good definitions or distinctions of the overlapping terms of mercy and grace, which I think is important. So as we conclude and move into time of celebrating the Lord's Supper together, I want to attempt to define covenant grace. We can't do it much justice. But with a, a church name like Community Covenant Church, we ought, to, we ought to have a good perspective on what that is. We ought to be particularly interested. The essence of, of covenant grace is the same throughout the Old and the New Testaments. God saves sin-addicted people by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Old Testament believers had faith in a future event and that their salvation came as a result of that faith, Abraham being one of them, right? And our faith is faith in a past event. But it's still about grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And some of us are raised in a church context where grace and works were necessary for salvation. That might be a Catholic view, former Catholic, great appreciation for my Catholic background, and yet the essence of their salvation, grace plus works, is not what we believe. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we would say, Protestants would say, that works are the fruit of a changed life. Not necessary for salvation, but who, once you've encountered Christ, who wouldn't want to engage in that way? Here's a quote by Jonathan Edwards. I love this. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. That's kind of awesome, right? We don't bring anything to the table except our sin, and that becomes part of what's going on. When speaking about God, God's covenant grace, I think we need to view it in its historical framework. For example, the scope of God's covenant of grace expanded out of the Old Testament and into the New Testament. If we go back to the inception of this covenant of grace, we'll find that it began in some small families, Abram's family, 
Noah's family, and then it moved out into the nation of Israel. But now in the church, God's covenant grace is made up of people, as Revelation 5.9 says, from every tribe and language and people and nation. So again, we see that the Bible only tells really one story when all is said and done, but it expands through the centuries, through the millennia, into the new covenant, which is the covenant of grace. And so as we move into our celebration of the Lord's Supper, I have to pre-open all my, because I have trouble with, with this. I say that every month, but nevertheless. Let's ponder two things as we move towards celebrating the Lord's Supper together. Has the gospel of God's covenant of grace through the coming of God's kingdom, the sacrificial cross of Christ, the free and total work of grace saved you? Has the gospel of God's grace saved you? And remember, we contribute nothing to our salvation. Here's what Martin Luther rightly said. He said, as sinners, we are prone to pursue a relationship with God in one of two ways. The first is through religion or spirituality. And we've all got friends, acquaintances that would say, I'm a spiritual person. Right? The second is through the free and total work of the gospel. Religion? No. Spirituality? No. The free and total work of the gospel is the only thing that saves us. And Luther would even say that the first is antithetical or hostile in every way to the second. And that's where we get confused in our culture. 